On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we have Dr. Christy Eason of the Corey Stringer Institute. If you've been involved in athletic training, you've undoubtedly come across Corey Stringer Institute and their work with exertional heat illness and exertional heat stroke and all the research they've done and the advocating to make heat-related deaths 100% preventable and how much they've worked to continue to put that out. They have a new initiative, which has been fantastic, and that is the Innovate Initiative, which Dr. Eason is the director of. And that's a lot of what we talk about in this episode is just what that is, what they're doing, how it's being set up, and the impact it's having. It's truly inspirational when it comes to that. We also talk about ATs advocating for themselves to be the experts on exertional heat-related things on emergency medicine and some of the issues that every once in a while seem to pop up for athletic trainers when we see it on social media about how things are done or getting overruled so so much good information in this one this was a fantastic episode and we can't wait to do a repeat to hear where innovates gone in the future um, we are powered by Mueller sports medicine but they also play an integral role in this innovate project and getting the equipment that these schools need for preventing exertional heat illness and so thank you to Mueller for being a part of that as well but without further ado please enjoy this episode take a lot from it Um, and if you're anything like us it really motivated us to continue to keep driving forward and trying to make a positive impact for everybody that athletic trainers serve enjoy Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. We are on with Dr. Christy Eason, who is out at the Corey Stringer Institute. Um, and we got connected through a mutual colleague of ours um, at Mueller Sports Medicine, uh, Richard Avis, who if you haven't watched any of our stuff with him or heard of him, he is what I would like to call the mad scientist of athletic training, um, just constantly thinking about everything. But uh, he and I had a conversation about just kind of some branding um, and marketing within athletic training and are we not focusing on some areas that really we could to show what our value is and still kind of focusing on some of the traditional in quotes if you will things ankle taping and the such still important but maybe not completely highlighting what we're um, capable of um, and so he actually connected us to talk about all kinds of topics, um, the Innovate Project, which we'll get into, um, some just barriers that we've also run into, um, potentially with managing different things with EMS and whatnot when it comes to heat. Um, and so Christy is gonna be our expert to tell us about all that. Um, but before I keep going, I wanna turn it over to you to fill in your background and kind of how you ended up where you are now, and we'll go from there. That sounds great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very grateful for Richard for um, connecting us. So my name is Christy Eason. I'm the president of sports safety at the Corey Stringer Institute. Um, I joined the KSI team in 2020, although I've spent many years at the University of Connecticut. I received my bachelor's degree um, in athletic training from UConn and, and returned for my PhD. Um, I spent uh, 
two years at James Madison University um, to get my master's degree. And, and in between my master's and my PhD, um, I worked clinically as a, uh, an athletic trainer for many years um, in the collegiate setting. So at the division one and the division three setting. Um, when I returned to UConn to get my PhD, um, I actually was able to work at a secondary school as part of my graduate assistantship. So I've had a lot of um, great clinical experiences. Um, before coming back to KSI, I actually was an assistant professor of athletic training at LaSalle University, um, which is a small school just um, west of Boston and Massachusetts. Um, my role at KSI um, is I oversee our latest project, Innovate, um, which you know we can talk, talk a lot about. Um, so although I don't work in the traditional athletic training setting with patients every day, um, a big part of my job is athletic training advocacy. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to, to be here and chat with you today. Yeah, uh, we're excited to have you. So I think we should just jump right into Innovate because it is such a cool initiative um, and just have you explain what it is and, you know, where it is currently. Uh, just talking off air, you know, we mentioned this has been kind of going on since 2020 to really get up and running. So kind of how it started, where it's at, and I really want to hear on where you see this going um, yeah. in the future. Oh man, I'm so excited about Innovate. So Innovate um, is one of KSI's newest initiatives and it's actually um, a project that is funded through the education fund that was established as part of the NFL concussion litigation. So I'm sure, you know, we're all very familiar with that. We've all seen, you know, the movie concussion or, or heard about CT, but as a direct result of that litigation, um, part of the settlement was that a fairly large uh, portion of money had to go into what's called the education fund. And much of that money um, was designated to go towards educating retired players um, to make them aware of the current uh, medical and disability benefits that the NFL has. So, so really making sure that retired players um, know what resources are available. But the other portion of that education fund and, and where Innovate comes from is actually allocating resources to promoting safety and injury prevention for football players of all ages. Um, so KSI had been very fortunate and we have a great relationship with the NFL. And so when they were thinking about what kind of project um, might really help promote uh, safety and injury prevention, they reached out to us and we thought, well, what better way to promote safety and injury prevention than really help to put athletic trainers in high schools? Um, we know that 34% uh, of high schools in the United States with sports don't have any access to athletic trainers. Um, and so we proposed the idea and uh, the judge agreed that it was a great project. And so we were um, awarded a $3 million grant essentially, but most of that money is actually going back into the communities. Um, so the project um, officially launched in 2020 and we started recruiting uh, applications. So our first applicants applied last year. Um, we reviewed applications and in the spring, we selected four communities to sort of be our first cohort. Um, and so just last week, I got to visit one of those schools that now has athletic trainers in their community that had never had athletic trainers before. Um, and one of the great things about Innovate is that we'll have two more cohorts. So we're currently reviewing applications for our second cohort. And then next year, we'll have one more round 
round of applications. So the goal is to fund between 10 and 14 school communities um, in sort of like the step phase um, over the next five years. So with that, is when you select these communities, is it a kind of a one-year deal with the hope that the, the value is seen and then picked up? Um, or, you know, for the longevity of it, or how have you guys kind of attacked that? That's a great question. So what um, an Innovate school um, uh, receives is funding over a three-year period. So the program's designed to provide the largest amount of support in the first year, and then gradually step down the funding so that hopefully within that three-year period, um, either the school um, where the athletic trainers are hired can... uh, put it into their budget or um, the schools can make partnerships with local outreach or hospitals or community providers so that they then themselves um, can support the athletic training programs. One thing that's a little bit unique about the Innovate Project we're working with the NFL Alumni Association. So we're working with them to identify retired players either who grew up in the communities, who currently live in the communities, or who played um, their professional career close to the communities. And so the idea of involving these retired players is to help put a spotlight on these schools, right? We know that one of the biggest barriers to hiring uh, athletic trainers in secondary schools is resources, right? And so um, being able to highlight the value of the athletic trainer in the secondary school um, and having the NFL alumni voice helps helps uh, uh, put the spotlight on that. Sure. No, that's awesome. I was kind of curious on how that stepwise process worked. I mm-hmm. only assumed that it was in place, but I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and one thing that we talk a lot about too, is that, you know, the money from Innovate is not infinite. So, right. you know, it's, it's great in that it will help establish that athletic training program or that new athletic training position that the school has never had. But when we review applications, we also ask them, what's your plan or, or what are you hoping to do to be able to continue these services? Um, and so it's been really exciting to, to hear from different schools, how they plan um, to continue funding these positions once the NFL uh, and the Innovate funds uh, run out. Are there any of those kind of innovative things that you can share? I think people might be interested as they're looking at their own communities, you know, if they don't have the opportunity for an Innovate grant, but if if these other schools have unique things, that, that could be useful. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that. I would say every school community that I talk to has a different idea. Okay. So, so one thing um, that's really front and center right now that a lot of schools are talking about is looking to see if they can shift some of the money from the CARES Act, so from um, the, the COVID sure. relief packages, yep. um, to use that to help support um, athletic training supplies. We have one of our schools in Georgia who's been able to allocate resources um, uh, from the CARES Act into some of the supplies, and and those are based on health and safety. We have other schools, so Shriners is a really great example. They're able to offer athletic training services into the communities at either no or low cost, but they're able to um, fund this through tax credits that they're able to get, right? We have um, other school communities who are now looking to see if Title I resources can be able to go towards using athletic trainers. Um, Title I is really interesting in that um, 
there's a lot of flexibility in, in how school communities can spend that money. Um, and so we're, we're constantly having conversations. What I will say is that oftentimes the initial allocation of resources can be the most difficult, right? So if you're not spending money on something, sometimes it can be really hard to get the money spent there. But now once you have an athletic trainer or you have these resources, sometimes when you see the value in the community, it can be a little bit easier. Um, one of the conversations that we had when we were visiting one of the schools was, um, well, we have this athletic trainer part-time and now I'm putting in my budget to ask if we can have them full-time, right? And so, you know, we're, we're just having lots of different conversations um, about, about how to, um, to be able to fund these positions. And look, there's a lot of creative, interesting ideas about having corporate sponsorships and, sure. and having, uh, you know, branding and, and all of those kind of things. So schools are getting really creative in, in how they're doing that. Is the Innovate program something that you guys at KSI are looking to for other opportunities for funding to continue into the future? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so we've already seen in this first cohort what um, what an impact it's having in these communities. So it's our goal kind of like behind the scenes to look to see if there's a way that we can sustain funding to bring in additional cohorts after the, the NFL concussion litigation um, settlement money is, is used. So, you know, we're, we're doing everything that we can to, to try to continue this program. Um, I don't want to say indefinitely, but for as long as we can. No, absolutely. I just what a powerful thing that if you can at least get it started, like you said, that initial hump being so big, if you can get past that, that could be such a big, big impact. Yeah. And, and I think so much of it is just bringing attention, you know, bringing attention to these communities that, don't have athletic trainers. And, and when you look at it, um, so one of our schools um, that, that was funded in the first cohort is Boston Public Schools. And as a healthcare provider, I often think of Boston as sort of one of the, the best um, or, or most well-respected health communities in the country, right? Because they sure. have all these great hospitals. And yeah. yet, when you look at Boston Public Schools, the majority of their student athletes have no access to an athletic trainer. And so sure. you wonder, okay, so so where's the disconnect? And oftentimes it, it's related to socioeconomic status. Um, it's it's uh, related to um, uh, different issues um, that uh, I think we just need to shed, shed light on and, and, and kind of even the playing field. Yeah, I can only imagine the front, especially in a, like you said, a city of that size with mm -hmm some of the institutions that are there that you would think there would be seemingly almost a drop in the bucket to make that happen. But yeah, it's so true. And, and the conversations that, that we had with their coaches was that, you know, when we go to the suburbs, all of the schools have athletic trainers, like our kids deserve to have this care just as much as, as these, right. these kiddos who are, who are in the, in the suburbs, right? They talk about how, you know, they're out of their own pockets buying food for their athletes just so that they guarantee that they're going to have a post-game meal, right? And so, you know, there's there's just a lot of need. And, and if we can help, um, you know, make that initial push to get the athletic trainers in the school, it's very, it's very fulfilling. And I think it's it's a great way to advocate for the profession as well. Oh, couldn't agree more. Anything else around Innovate you wanted to cover before we kind of shift over to exertional heat 
type related things? Um, I think the biggest thing that I would say about um, Innovate is that uh, athletic trainers in the high school setting are so important for so many reasons. Um, I think that um, you have these physically and emotionally um, developing student athletes who who need this care um, just as much, if if not more than collegiate and professional athletes, um, that the athletic trainer in the high school can serve as not only a a conduit for healthcare um, and mental health care, but also a trusted adult, um, someone that can provide a safe space. And I, and I really truly believe, and I'm, I'm not just saying this because, uh, I work on a project that, that interacts with high school athletic trainers. I think athletic trainers who are employed in the high school setting have the biggest opportunity to advocate for our profession because most of the student athletes that they're working with are not going on to, to college or they're not going on to, to professional sports but they're probably going to be a parent or a legislator or a coach or an administrator. And if you have a good high school athletic trainer, that is going to have these big, huge ripple effects. So I think high school athletic trainers are are like our best marketing tool. I could not agree more with that, especially in (laughs) that type of, you know, in the athletic setting, just how much reach you have and how much impact you can have there and Mm -hmm. what they're able to do still baffles me um in in an overly impressed kind of way Um, yeah couldn't agree more with that um so kind of shifting to exertional heat illness and those situations um this kind of spurred a little bit more from that conversation back with Richard. Um, I'm on a panel group that Mueller meets with quarterly and this conversation came up and there was some discussion around, you know, what are the issues or potential barriers that athletic trainers run into um, with managing exertional heat illness and then coordinating that with EMS and running into some issues there um, and that's where the kind of marketing of AT kind of came up of that maybe we're not showcasing ourselves as the experts in this area. I know personally we've run into this covering a couple local events where going on the ER physician's orders, even though we had physicians covering the event that wanted to do um, basically following you know the protocol that you guys have put out, which is what we followed at the university I worked at, EMS still wanted to take them even though we had everything we needed to take care of them there and then send them. So there was EMS trying to overrule physicians that are sitting right there, not just ATs, but long story short, what have you guys found? I know we're going to talk about some potential policy changes as well, or policy changes that have happened. Um, So what have you seen in terms of working through some of those obstacles and challenges uh, that you guys have figured out? That's a great question. I have like so many things I want to say about this. Before I jump into it, though, I, I want to yes. close the loop a little bit with Mueller. So so one thing that, that Mueller has been um, really fantastic about with the Innovate Project is that they really wanted to be able to help provide some tangible items for the athletic trainers um, who are hired in Innovate. And with these conversations that they've had with heat illness, um, Mueller donated the inflatable 
cold water uh, immersion tubs. They donated um, uh, Kestrel WBGT devices, and they also donated um, rectal thermistors for all of the athletic trainers through um, uh, through the Innovate project. And, and so we were very grateful for them, but that's, that's really kind of spurred this conversation about, okay, so if you can equip the athletic trainer with the resources that they need, what are some other potential barriers that, that they might encounter? And so this conversation about, uh, you know, the EMS and the, and the paramedic response has been really interesting, right? Um, just to share like a really quick anecdote, our um, medical director for the Corey Stringer Institute works as an emergency room doctor. And one thing he always talks about is that there's this misconception that emergency rooms are prepared to do whole body cooling, right? He works at a hospital and he said, they don't have tubs, right? They literally have to figure out how to bill a patient for ice if they were going to use ice in a cold water immersion tub, right? And of course there's some tools that they have, um, you know, that they can use uh, saline or, or blankets, you know, things like that. But sure. he said, oftentimes there's this misconception that paramedics are going to get them to the emergency room and then they're going to be able to get the best care there. And in fact, what we know is that if you can reduce core temperature as quickly as possible, um, you know, within that kind of 30 minute window, exertional heat stroke is hundred percent survivable. Yep. But if you delay that, um, then you're looking at these, these long-term consequences, or if you initiate cooling, but you don't get the temperature low enough and you remove them and you transport them, you're still looking at potential fatalities or long-term consequences, right? And so I think it's important for us to remember that paramedics have always learned and in EMS have always learned and, and part of their protocols have been, they transport and they get them to the emergency room as soon as possible. So it's important for us to keep in mind that that's their protocol. But with that being said, for exertional heat stroke, that's not optimal. And a big part of that has to be educating EMS and paramedics and even emergency room physicians and, and anyone who's overseeing EMS and paramedics that some of these policies have to change. Um, some of these protocols have to change so that these student athletes or anyone who's a, a suffering from an exertional heat stroke um, is going to receive optimal care, right? So at KSI, we don't focus just on the athlete. We also talk about the warfighter and the laborer. And we have we see really high rates of exertional heat stroke within um, uh, the laborer population, right? And so um, a big part of it is, is education and, and uh, you know, kind of going against what their initial uh, instinct is to do. So how do we potentially go about doing that education? Have you found things that have worked for people? Uh, yeah, I've so, heard of some conversations even between doctors and doctors. It hasn't gone so well kind of locally for us, but um, just if there's anything that you have found. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think at the most basic level, the first step is taking it back to your emergency action plan, right? So when we talk about the emergency action plans, an important part of that is that you are collaborating with your local EMS. And I think that allows 
you to start having the conversations. There's a really excellent document that came out uh, a few years ago, um, specific for AMS and paramedics, that it's the pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke, right? So if you're going to work with your EMS in, in preparing, um, I highly recommend like bringing that document. So it's not just you saying it now it's a document that's that's been released and shows evidence-based practice um, so i always suggest having those conversations ahead of time the other thing is um, annual practice and annual rehearsals so that you have these conversations before an emergency comes up truthfully though the biggest piece is going to have to come from an education perspective and and ultimately, it's going to be starting to get policies um, and protocols changed for, for EMS and paramedics. So having really great allies um, that they can help uh, propose and, and move these things forward. So two really good examples. There's an athletic trainer out of Maryland, Ed Strapp. Um, he works as a flight paramedic, um, and he's also the governmental affairs rep for, for District 3. And he does a great job trying to bridge the gap between athletic training and, and EMS because he he works in both of those sure. worlds. Yeah. What, what was that? I said, sure. Yeah. That's oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was really instrumental in, in looking to try to get some of the protocols for exertional heat stroke for EMS and for paramedics changed. And he was successful in doing this. So if you look at protocols for most uh, uh paramedics and EMS, it is like what we talked about, grab them and go, right? Like we just want to get them and get them to the emergency room as soon as possible. But he worked with, um, you know, the organization within his state. And now in Maryland, they actually have in their protocol for exertional heat stroke to cool first, transport second. And essentially what that means is that if paramedics arrive on scene and, um, cooling is taking place, they have to leave the patient in uh, the cooling modality until their temperature gets to at least 102 degrees. So that's now statewide policy protocol for Maryland. In Connecticut, Connecticut also enacted a very similar policy with the cool first, transport second, and they went one step further and now require all paramedics to have a rectal temperature on the rig. And oh. what they now say is that if there's a suspe uh, suspected exertional heat stroke, that core temperature via a rectal temperature needs to be taken. So, you know, what we've learned is that many paramedics don't carry a rectal temperature on, on, on their devices. Most of them will not do um, cool first transport seconds. But now we have examples of two different states that have now put that into their EMS and their paramedic protocols. And I think that has the potential to start the ripple because truthfully, until that starts permeating into their protocols, you're still going to have those arguments. You're still going to have those fights. The other thing that I would say is that you have to get rid of kind of like this imposter syndrome in athletic training that sure. um, the EMS or the paramedic is, is the more trained or, or, or more seasoned or more experienced healthcare provider. The truth is in this particular situation, athletic trainers receive a lot more education on how to deal with this in particular, right? That's not to take anything away from paramedics or, or EMS, um, but we have the appropriate education and the appropriate training. Um, and so don't be afraid to, to stand up and say, this is this is what is right. Um, you always want to arm yourself with resources, right? So whether it's the NHA yep. position statement, whether that's that document that, that, I, uh, that I mentioned, we have 
a ton of data from the Falmouth Road Race to support this idea of cool first, uh, transport second. Um, so always go into these conversations, like arm yourself with the data um, to share. And then, you know, having a really good um, advocate to support you is, is always helpful, whether it's your team physician or it's a local paramedic or, or whoever that might be. Um, you know, I think that can be really helpful, but it's a really big education piece and it's a really big planning piece. And the biggest piece of advice I can give is don't wait until the emergency happens to start having those conversations, sure. start them now, right? Like if, if you're working wherever, you know, uh, in an industrial setting, in a military setting, in a high school setting, have those conversations. Because the one thing I always say is that no matter where you work, no matter whether there's an athletic trainer or not, when you call 911, EMS, paramedics, they're responding, right? And so we have to start, you know, shifting the conversation and, and, and helping shift some of their policies and their protocols as well. So for those two specific ones, was it almost kind of happening at like the state association level and then coming mm -hmm. down? which could potentially be another route. It sounds like, you know, locally, obviously I could go and mm -hmm. chat with our local EMS and, you know, try and have good conversations, but potentially like state associations talking to other state associations, mm -hmm. you get a lot. If you can get it to happen, could be a lot more bang for your buck. If you a hundred percent, if you can get it into the, into the protocols, that's the best that's the best thing possible. The one thing that is so unique and maybe a little frustrating about EMS and paramedic protocols is that some protocols are universal for the state. So Connecticut and Maryland are two sure. states that have universal EMS paramedic protocols, but there's other states that have county yeah. protocols. And so one county um, might have a specific protocol and then another county has a different sure. protocol. So learning a little bit about um, the way your state up is going to be really helpful. Um, most, uh, you know, uh, EMS paramedics, you know, will have a, a unifying dispatch or a universal, uh, sorry, unifying overseeing physician. And so starting the conversations with those individuals um, will be really helpful. And, you know, like if you ever need uh, anyone to, to help support this, we at KSI always love talking about this. So yes. um, we're always, we're always happy to, to lead the charge as well. Yeah, and I think you saying that is hugely important because that was kind of a thing that I brought up is, you know, unfortunately, I think some of these, whether it's EMS or that ER physician, you know, see you as the kind of the quote lowly AT, like especially mm -hmm. if you're out on your own at a high school that's a little bit more rural that sometimes you need to be able to call in kind of that heavy hitter, if you will, mm -hmm. who obviously in this case, you all at KSI, because the research has been done. It has been shown with obviously tremendous success. Um, and so I think a lot of people would appreciate knowing that they could reach out um, potentially if they need that backup. Yeah, we would, we would love to. And, and I would say too, truthfully, you know, what's been very helpful for us is that we've had amazing physicians who, who have also helped support us, right? You know, I mentioned our um, medical director, Dr. Jardine, we have great relationships with, um, with physicians all over the country that, that um, really kind of understand the physiology behind exertional heat stroke and why it's so important to do this cooling. Um, and so sometimes connecting with those. The one thing that I, you know, just to kind of go back to what we were talking about, um, you know, a little bit earlier is that don't 
ever think as an athletic trainer that you don't have a voice too? Like, you know, uh, you, you have a very powerful voice and, and, and the more that you can leverage that and, and, uh, make connections within the community, I think the more powerful and impactful that, that you'll be. So, um, of course we're always uh, willing to help, but, um, athletic trainers also have a really, um, valuable, powerful, impactful voice too. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more there. Kind of spinning back to kind of just the marketing concept, you know, is that something that you guys at KSI or obviously you personally are trying to help focus on? You know, I'm not saying that we're trying to rebrand the entire profession, but just highlight so much of what we can do. And like you had referenced already, you know, that we are well trained in this and they're constantly looking to improve it. And while, yes, you know, especially at the secondary setting, you do everything. Um, some of which maybe are not quite as important yet. We put a lot of focus on those things compared to some of these bigger things. I guess your thoughts on that. Yeah. So we, we are, big advocates for athletic trainers in, in all settings, particularly um, the secondary school setting, because we've, we've seen a big gap for that. I will say, um, you know, from the, the Innovate perspective, what, what we're really trying to highlight is the value of the athletic trainer and not just for the student athlete, but also for the community. Um, and when I, when I say that, I mean for the other students, uh, in the high school, even if they're not an athlete, maybe there's an opportunity to have an athletic training student club. And so these kids sure. can learn about different uh, career pathways or for coaches or for administrators or for parents, right? Athletic trainers um, can have such a value in, in the school community. So we really try to promote that um, a lot through Innovate, because again, if someone is going to invest in an athletic trainer, um, sometimes showing the bang for the buck, for lack of a better word, um, can help uh, with that. I will also say one of our other initiatives, the Team Up for Sports Safety, that's a project that um, we work on where we're looking to um, uh, work with leaders within the state to advance uh, evidence-based practice policies that have been shown to um, uh, mitigate the risk of catastrophic illnesses and injuries. And, and what we do is we bring together uh, athletic trainers and other healthcare providers, but also coaches, um, members of the State High School Athletic Association. And so it's really powerful to have all of those people in the room. And, and kind of to your point, I don't know if we've ever I don't know if I've ever really thought about it as, as marketing, but it really is kind of selling the value of the athletic trainer in these high school settings and, and the value of, of, of sports safety. So, you know, I, I think like you're saying uh, this idea of marketing and I kind of have always thought of it as like advocacy. And I, and I really love, um, you know, kind of like the synergy behind, yeah, behind those two words. Right. Um, you know, we just to, you know, not go too far off on a tangent. Um, we also now, uh, have a new project, um, the national heat safety coalition, where we really want to focus on the laborer. Right. And, um, and, and kind of showing the importance of having, um, uh, safe working environments for those individuals as well. So there's a, there's a lot that, that we're trying to do to advocate for and for market, um, you know, sports safety and the athletic trainer for sure. Well, we appreciate all the work you guys are doing. On that. <laughs> oh, thank it's, you. it's obviously having an impact. Um, 
you know, I, I, with everything you guys are doing. So um, appreciate that and what you're doing for the profession. Well, um, thank anything? you. I think um, I say this all the time, but you, when you work with passionate people, it's just, it's contagious. And so I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of people who are very passionate um, and who care a lot about um, sports safety and athletic training and, um, you know, uh, athlete, uh, warfighter, laborer safety. So uh, it's kind of contagious. You can't help, but just, you know, want to keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. I can only imagine the environment out there. <laughs> just, you know, I've only met, uh, Dr. Casa once uh, he came and spoke at our university and we got to hang out with him and just, I don't, does the guy sleep just the way, you know, the way you go, go, goes. And then I know a few other people that have gone through kind of UConn's um, program and been tied to KSI and they're doing huge things as well. So yeah, I can imagine the environment is pretty fun and unique one to be in uh to keep yeah just it's like it's like osmosis you can't help like it just absorbs into right <laughs> yeah in in a good way not a competitive you just you feel drawn to doing more and more so exactly exactly um anything else around innovate or exertional heat illness and mm. stroke that we haven't covered that you would like to yeah i mean i think uh I think we hit on uh, most of what I, I wanted to chat about, right? Like just reemphasizing the importance of the athletic trainer in the secondary school, um, highlighting the value, making those connections. Um, and again, when it comes to um, EMS, exertional heat stroke, I do think that importance of education, right? Like if you're an athletic trainer at a high school, at a college, at an industrial setting, having that conversation with someone who might not agree with you uh, or might think that uh, another option is better, just opening up that conversation can be extremely powerful, right? Like, you know, there's things that we can be doing up here, but kind of that, for lack of a better word, that grassroot bottom up approach, it can be very, very impactful. And so don't be afraid to have those conversations because you never know um, whose mind you might change and who that person knows and, and what that snowball effect might be. So I know some days it can feel like really tedious and you're exhausted, but like keep having those conversations because you are going to chip away at it and, and, and change is going to happen. Like I've seen changes happen. Um, you know, two states that we've mentioned have completely changed their protocols, which is so different than anything that they've ever done. So, you know, just keep marketing, keep advocating, yep. keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. yeah. You never know what parent you're talking to about what you're trying to do to keep someone safe, who happens well, to know somebody who knows somebody who's the lead physician. And then all of a sudden things start rolling. I, I've seen those happen too. And you just, you just never know. Yeah. Yeah. I have a great example. I have a friend who works as a uh, athletic trainer in a high school in New York, and, and she had um, a situation where there was an exertional heat stroke. And it turns out that the parent of the athlete was a physician. And so him seeing her uh, provide the appropriate treatment that just opened up a huge doors because now the student athlete wasn't just a random patient. It was his child. Right. right. And so, you know, you just, you keep doing these things and you're going to make an impact. Sometimes progress can be slow. I get that. Um, but you just keep going. Yep. And it's seemingly for you know everyone listening, the research is on your side, which is always helpful because then it's not just your opinion, um, you know, which is you have things to back it up and we'll continue to have more. So make sure you're checking those out. We'll make sure to link 
the couple things you've referenced um, just in this episode page. So people can go check awesome. that out as well. Um, plus, obviously, a link to KSI. Um, but yeah, anything else you'd like to cover before we kind of jump into those athletic training chat questions? No, I think that's good. The only thing I will say, if if you are interested in Innovate or you know anyone who's in, interested in Innovate, don't hesitate to reach out. We'd, we'd love to chat with you more about it. And if there's anything that we can do to help, um, you know, kind of bridge that gap with EMS um, paramedic protocols, um, if you're dealing with challenges, just reach out to us. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, just one kind of quick question more back towards Innovate again. You know, if it, is there a way any athletic trainers come from across the country, whether they're already in a secondary setting or whatnot, can they get involved in any way or help assist in, in any kind of way other than potentially making connections? Is there anything, any opportunities? Yeah, it's, there? A, great, it's a great question. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, kind of almost like establishing this, uh, this idea of like a mentorship uh, program, oh, I think. Perfect. My experience working as a, an athletic trainer in the secondary school, I just remember being so grateful that I had had several years of experience as an athletic trainer prior to being in the high school, because I would say that was the hardest job I ever had because sure. I had a very limited budget. I had um, me, myself, and I as the healthcare provider at the school, so I didn't have someone else to rely on. Um, and so you can sometimes feel like you're in an in an island, right? Like when you're working at the high school, if, if, if it's just you. And so, um, you know, I, any ideas that, that you have, uh, and ways that we can support, not just the athletic trainers through innovate, but our high school athletic trainers, like we love these ideas and, um, you know, uh, anything that, that we can do to help support each other, I think is super important, but if you'd be interested in mentoring, like definitely, definitely reach out. We have on our website, um, there's a link specifically for innovate and it asks, like if you're an athletic trainer and you might be interested in mentoring, you can, uh, you can contact us and, and let us know. Perfect. We will link that up as well. Um, awesome. So thanks. thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So, uh, first question is where do you see athletic training going in five to 10 years? And if you can kind of set the example of where, or if there's a specific setting you're thinking about. <laughs> So I've been thinking a lot about this question and I'm very fortunate that in my position, I get to interact with a lot of athletic trainers, but also a lot of administrators. And I think that what I'm seeing is that there is a desire and a need and athletic training is just going to continue to grow as far as job opportunities. We have to continue having conversations about fair and equitable salaries, of course, right? But I, I do think that um, these positions are going to continue growing. I will also say, I think there's going to be more of an appetite for athletic trainers in these non-traditional settings as well, right? There's, there's states all over the country, you know, currently working on their scope of practice, um, to look to, to be able to hire athletic trainers in sort of these non-traditional settings. Um, I think that um, there's a recognized need for athletic trainers. And, and what I would say is I haven't had one conversation with a single person who doesn't believe or care about safety, right? Whether that's sports safety or workplace safety, it's just, we might sometimes disagree on, on how to get there. Um, truthfully, I also think that there's an opportunity for more athletic trainers to be in kind of like these leadership 
type of positions, um, whether it's within the hospital setting, the school, um, like college university setting. Yep. Um, and so I, I just, man, I see, I see so much potential growth for athletic training, um, and a, and a lot of need for it. I like it. I like the optimism <laughs> a lot and I agree completely. What advice would you give to yourself if you could go back when you were a younger athletic trainer and if you could you know, set the example of when that was? Mm, good question. So I was very disappointed that several years ago, I uh, aged out of the young professional category. I'm no, <laughs> no longer technically a young professional, but uh, for me, one thing I think about a lot. So the other hat that I wear, um, in addition to, to working at KSI is I'm a, I'm a work-life balance, uh, researcher. So I do a lot of research looking at work-life balance and, and, uh, you know, what we can do, um, to help with, uh, athletic training retention. Um, so one piece of advice I think I would give to my younger self is advocate for yourself just as strongly as you advocate for your patients. I think we do a really good job advocating for our patients, but we don't always do the best job advocating for ourselves. And so I think in my younger years, um, I think there's some things that I kind of let slide, like, Ooh, I shouldn't say anything. Um, and and I wish that I had spoken up a little bit sooner to advocate for myself, right? The other thing I would say um, now that I'm older um, is that no is a complete sentence. So it's okay yeah. to say no <laughs> to something, right? Like you don't have to say yes to every single thing. And if you say no, it doesn't mean that you've um, closed the door. The last piece of advice I would give myself, um, and I've been really fortunate, um, is that don't be afraid um, to go down a path that you didn't think was the path that you were heading down, right? Like when I was a, an athletic training student sitting in Dr. Koss's class as an undergraduate student, I was convinced that I was going to be the next head athletic trainer for the Boston Red Sox. And then I worked baseball and no offense to anyone who loves baseball, but it was not my jam. Like I did not <laughs> love working baseball. And simultaneously, I took a research class and it opened my eyes to this whole other side of athletic training, right? And when I went to get my PhD, I was convinced I was going to stay in athletic training education for the rest of my career. And now here I am at KSI, not teaching, but rather advocating, right? And so my trajectory has shifted. And I think, I think my younger self would have been a little nervous to like go down these different sure. paths, but just, you know, stay open to possibilities and know that it's okay. If your trajectory changes, like it's okay to change, to change the plan. I like that one a lot. And I had never heard the no is a complete sentence. I like that one. I always use uh, no as both an answer and end an explanation. Um, so I, I like, I'm going to probably borrow that one from time to time. Yeah. Cause don't you ever like, if someone asks you to do something in the back of your mind, don't you always think about like, oh, why am I going to tell them why I can't do it? Right. Like right. you're always trying to come up. You can just say no. Like it's okay yeah. to just say no. Yeah. What has been the most influential resource that you have found in your career? I thought about this one a lot too. And I don't know how tangible this is, but for me, 
it has a hundred percent been my professional network, um, taking advantage of the relationships that I have made throughout my career. Um, and I could give you countless examples of, of how relying on my professional network for advice and mentorship has helped me on that, you know, those different trajectories, right? When I was working in the collegiate setting and, and truthfully feeling a little bit of burnout myself, I had the opportunity to talk to one of my professors from undergrad and she just so happened to have a graduate assistantship position open for my PhD, which was what, you know, enabled me to be able to come back to school and when I got my job at LaSalle University, it's because um, my my old uh, boss at Curry, um, his wife worked at LaSalle. And so I made these connections. Right. And, and even coming back to KSI, it was maintaining those relationships with the folks. So I think for me, you know, the most influential resource for me has been my professional network. And I know that's not, you know, your kind of traditional traditional answer, but I can't say it enough rely on uh, those people and those relationships that you've made, because if you're struggling with a patient case and you can't figure it out and you're, and you're, you're having challenges, talk to someone that you trust and, and they might give you the most um, beneficial response from their own personal experiences, right? Like when you talk about evidence-based practice, you have to talk about clinician experience in there too, right? So it's not just the research and the literature, it's, it's all those experiences. So, um, like I said, that might be a little outside of the box, but for me, it's, that's been the most impactful thing in, in my career for sure. No, I think it's a per perfect answer. Um, <laughs> I agree. This next one, I'm actually really interested in more so now, because I know that you now know that you do some work-life balance research mm -hmm. as an AT in your role, how do you take care of yourself? Great question. So for me, two things uh, have been really important. One is that I have to disengage from work sometimes, right? And, and I'm in a very fortunate situation where I work with people who are very passionate, but they're passionate about a lot of things. They're not just passionate about, about their jobs. And I don't have... Um, you know, this crazy pressure to have to be working 24 hours a day. I know that can be challenging, but, but for me, it's um, disengaging, turning off my computer not checking my email. I, I, I try very hard in my particular position to on the weekends, um, you know, separate myself. And so I know many athletic trainers work on the weekends, but if there's a certain, you know, threshold that you can set, like after six o'clock or after 10 o'clock, whatever it is, I'm going to disengage and I'm going to take some time for myself. I think that's really important. Um, uh, this, oh, I want to say one more thing about that, actually. Yeah. I, I, I talked to my students when I was working a lot about um, not letting your professional identity be your only identity, right? Because at the end of the day, if uh, I wasn't able to go to work tomorrow, KSI would still thrive and function without me. I mean, they might miss me for a day or two, um, but they'd be able to go on. Right. But the people in my personal life, like I like to think I would be a big loss. Right. And so it's important that you, you don't just focus on that professional identity that you, you have a piece of that, that personal identity too. Um, the other thing, uh, that I found has been really helpful is to ask for help when I need it um, and, and to be able to outsource. Um, 
what I really love to do in my free time is um, I'm a huge fan of paddle boarding. Although living in New England this time of year, it's not really optimal paddle boarding time. Um, I'm a recreational runner. I really like to make sure that I, uh, I get some time for some exercise. Again, this time of year when it's cold, it's not really uh, something that I want to do, go outside in the cold, but it's, it's very therapeutic. And then it was like making time for my friends. So uh, like I said, I'm, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. And, and there's things that I do now that I probably wouldn't have done when I was younger in my career. Absolutely. If you could change or eliminate one thing, could be a modality, a common practice, a mindset, or anything of your choosing in the field of athletic training, what would it be? I have a couple for this one. Um, and I wanted to base them a little bit off of our conversations. Sure. Um, so the first thing is that I would say I would change um, this idea that the high school athletic trainer is somehow like less than like that you settled to be an athletic trainer. Like, why aren't you working at the college setting? I know we yes. talked about this earlier. Um, I think athletic trainers in, in the secondary school setting are, are the best advocates for our profession, but for some reason there's this like weird, um, I don't know, idea premise or something from people who work in other settings that you settle uh, to be a high school athletic trainer. I think high school athletic trainers uh, are working in some of the most challenging settings. Um, so I'd love to change that. Um, the second thing was that I would wave my magic wand and there would be licensure in all 50 states <laughs> for athletic trainers uh, and the District of Columbia and that we wouldn't have to worry about sunset laws. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to step into this one. Um, I would, uh, help athletic trainers get over the fear of rectal temperatures. I think that they are very important. Um, they're an essential diagnostic criteria for diagnosing an exertional heat stroke. And I can't think of any other modality that athletic trainers are so squeamish around. So I would love, I would love to change that. I think that one's very fitting for the conversation. I'm glad, <laughs> that's glad that's what I thought. I thought that was yep. appropriate. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, last question of these. What does being an athletic trainer mean to you? Mm -hmm. To me, it means being a healthcare provider, professional, and uh, being an advocate for our patients, for ourselves, um, for the profession. And so um, I think athletic training is, is one of the best jobs in the world. Um, I think that, uh, you're challenged all the time. It's, it's an exciting, um, uh, exciting profession to be in and, uh, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. So being, being an athletic trainer means that I get to be an advocate and I get to meet awesome people all the time like you. Yeah, well, that's I have, I've said on many of these episodes, a subtle reason for wanting to start this is I've now met a bunch of people I probably never would have come across before and who I, we've conti I've continued to stay in touch with. So it's been awesome in that regard um, as well. So uh, kind of in closing, if people wanted to reach out to you or follow you or connect with you, uh, what would be the best route to do that? And then you kind of also reference, uh, so if you would, wouldn't mind sharing the best way to kind of reach out to the Corey Stringer Institute for ideas or anything, um, obviously we'll put that specific link to the mentorship thing um, as well. 
Yeah. So um, you can always email me, email me, uh, email is the best way to get in touch with me. So it's just my first name, my last name at uconn.edu. So christiane.eason at uconn.edu. Um, email is always the best way to get in touch with me. I'm also trying to increase my Twitter profile. So you can always follow me on Twitter. Um, it's CM, like the underscore line Eason. Um, our website at KSI, uh, there's a tab on the website that says outreach, and you can see all of our, our outreach projects. So our Atlas project, our Tufts project, um, our state high school policy review project, and then our Innovate project. If you click on any of those projects, there's a, a way that you can click to communicate with us, um, okay. and that gets filtered directly to, so Dr. Huggins gets Atlas, Dr. Stearns uh, gets Tufts, and I get everything related to, to Innovate. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to answer questions. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we got this to work out. I think there was some really valuable information in this, and uh, I look forward to seeing more of what happens with Innovate, and we will have to definitely do a follow-up um, as we get another year or so into this for you to see how things are going and what's next um, and be excited to hear what comes from goes on from there. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to Richard for connecting us. Uh, thank you to, to Mueller for, uh, for all of your support. And I would love to be able to talk about all the great work um, of the athletic trainers who are being hired through the Innovate Project. Awesome. We'll look forward to doing that in the future. Thank you.